0: A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.
1: He came to the park, he could barely walk, and word trickled down that, that Gibson wasn't going to play. me heard this. And he heard that there was a lot of talk about in the press that he just wasn't going to play. He's not available. When he heard Ben Scully announce it, that he is actually not available because he's hurt, he said two words. He said, my ass. Mm. He got off of there, got dressed, and started hitting balls off the tee. He told Mitch Poole, who was our clubhouse guy, he told Mitchell to go tell Tommy that if he needs him to hit in the ninth inning, I'm available. And now,
0: Great to have you on board. For if you don't like that, my guest is coming up momentarily. Then we've got the Q and A via Crowd Ultra, and then Grant's rant. Today's podcast is brought to you by New Works Plumbing. Great to get an email yesterday from a listener of the podcast, Robert. He said, hey, Grant, I'm a big fan of you. I have been for many years. Love your podcast. Heard the commercials for New Works Plumbing. I had a big problem in my master bath. I called them. They were outstanding. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. I'll be listening. New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. That's exactly what you're going to get. They have been in Sacramento for over 20 years, and whether it's leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, newworks Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problems, they've got a fix for you. And they're expert technicians. They're available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing dot com. Today's guest played in the major leagues, and when he broke in in the early 80s, he was the best. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1982 in the National League, a five-time All-Star. He won two championships with the L.A. Dodgers. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Steve Sachs. Saxie, how are you, man?
1: Grant, I'm doing great. It's so good to talk with you. It's been a little while, but... We miss you here in Sacramento, and I'm telling you, it's just good to be with you again.
0: Well, hey, it's great to uh, have you on my podcast. I really appreciate that. I want to talk about the guy, the man, the legend that we lost in the last couple of months that you knew very well. I say Tommy Lasorda, you say what?
1: I say, you know, he was he was once in a generational type of a figure. He is a, the real deal, not politically correct. He knew how to get the most out of people by sheer enthusiasm and honesty and there's so many facets to Tommy that there's not going to be another one like him so we dearly miss him and he brought so much to the game
0: you say he brought so much to the game playing for him and then after baseball when you knew Tommy Lasorda did you have a guy that would support you for life I mean I hear so many stories about Tommy the person and Tommy the manager what was the difference mm-hmm. talk about that aspect of him
1: to me, he was the same person all the time. He was he was a guy that didn't go to college. And so Tommy wasn't a guy that really relied on, say a guy like Tony LaRussa, who I whom I also played for. Tony Larusa was a very astute, very cerebral type that got the most out of his players to facts and, you know, analysis and whatnot. Tommy La was all about the heart. where's the motions on his sleeve. The rah rah that people talk about Tommy, it it was it, he was it was genuine. It was coming from his heart. Whether you believed it or not, he wore his emotions out there. He he was a guy that respected people. You know, if he had something to say to you, he would bring you in his office and rip you up and down. And then afterwards, he would he would kiss you on the cheek and shake your hand and 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 say, "Bring everybody else back into uh, in the clubhouse into my office now. Let's let's all have something to eat." That's what he was like. Once once he said his piece, it was over, and he certainly never did it in the press.
0: I had Mickey Hatcher on this podcast a couple of months ago. You know how funny Mickey is. Oh, my God. Right? When we
1: got Kurt Grifton over to the Dodgers, right? I had, it was crazy in the locker room because – Next to me on my right was Kirk Gibson, who you think was going to bring an Uzi into the locker room if he got kicked off enough. And then on to my left was Mickey Hatcher, who you know was was like a giving. It looked like he just got off a Ferris wheel. You know, in the, uh, he comes into the clubhouse. I got I got these two guys on either side of me, and so you can imagine what that was like.
0: Hey, literally, you know mean? I I can't even imagine you know having sure. Jimmy and Mickey Hatcher on each side of you. But um... Jimmy and Mickey,
1: I was like, I didn't know what what the hell I was doing. I, mean, I was trying to. Find some solace in the middle, you know. But <laughs> he, he, was, he was quite an emotional ride in the locker for me. Mickey and uh, Hank. Gibby. So,
0: you know, speaking yeah. of speaking of Mickey and Gibby, I mean Mickey Hatcher in the World Series that you won in '88. I mean, he was unbelievable in that World Series.
1: <gasps> Mickey, Mickey was a very talented player. You know, he could he could really put the bat on the ball. The basic skills of baseball. You know, he was really good at. It. He wasn't a fast guy. You know, he he wasn't a guy that that had you know unbelievable power. But he had good basketball skills. He could put the bat on the ball. He could hit the other way. Good, he was a decent fielder. He could do all things pretty good, not great at anything. But man, Grant, did he rise to the occasion in the World Series against the Oakland A's? Oh, boy. He was. He was good. He was tremendous. Mickey Hatcher was the leader of our team, uh, a group of, on our team called the Stuntmen. And the Stuntmen were a bunch of guys that, that came in and off the bench and, and helped the team. Well, they took on their own identity and Mickey Hatcher made them important that way. He had their own shirts. He had their own following. If it wasn't for the stuntmen because of the injuries we had, at Bob Costas. There's no way that we would have won the World Series without the stuntmen. And Mickey was the leader of the stuntmen. Wow.
0: 1988. Yankees, for me, the best year I've ever seen a pitcher have was 78 Ron Guidry, 25 and 3, ERA 1.74. I went to college at Bowling Green with Oral Hershiser That year Ryan. he had in 1988. Have you ever seen a pitcher mm-hmm. more dominant than Oral that year?
1: No. no. And you, you mentioned Ron Guidry, it's a great, a great comparison. Uh, but Oral Hershiser, when he broke uh, the, Don Drysdale's record of fifty nine and two thirds scoreless innings, think about how how dominant that is. I mean, he had to go through the likes of people like Tony Gwynn, who, we, who was in our division, and so many times that that Oral had you know with the game on the line, he was always the one to come up and, and win it. You know, win that that battle within the within the war. Oral would always win those against people because he had great stuff. I mean, he had a great slider. Basically, he did it with two pitches. Tinker and a slider. And he was dominant on both sides of the plate, and he could put it right where he wanted it. And that's why Oral was so good.
0: Take me back to Gibby coming up against Eck, and as a player, as a teammate, seeing Tommy say, okay, Gibby, you're you're up. Mm-hmm. What was that like from your perspective?
1: Well, let me tell you, from my perspective, it was great because I was the next guy up. <laughs> I was on deck. Wow. I was on deck when Gibby hit the home run. So I'm thinking about how I have to win this game, and I think I just uh, from a, from a bird's eye view, I can tell you right now, it was so funny when I see the replay. Uh, you know, how Dodger fans leave a little bit early sure. from games, even in the World Series. You know, after when they from the from the TV standpoint, Gibby hits the ball out of the park, and you can see in in the parking lot all the brake lights that are lighting up. You know, people listening to it on the radio thinking, "Damn, we left too early." Yeah. You know, and all the brake lights were lighting up everywhere because they they couldn't believe it. You know, holy cow, Gibson really did. He hit the ball out of the ballpark. So, but Gibby wasn't even dressed to play. He was, he came to the park, he could barely walk. And, you know, word trickled down that, that Gibson wasn't going to play. Gibby heard this, and he heard that there was a lot of talk about in the press that he just wasn't going to play, he's not available. But when he heard Kurt, when he heard Vince Scully announce it, that, that he is actually not available because he's hurt, Gibby said two words, he said, my ass. He got off of there, got dressed, and started hitting balls off the tee. He told Mitch Poole, who was our clubhouse guy, he told Mitchell to go tell Tommy that if he needs him to hit in the ninth inning, I'm available. Wow. So that's that's how that all went down. And then, you know, of course, he summons Gibby to the plate, and the rest is history.
0: The A's and Dennis Eckersley, Eck was their man. He was dominant. Yeah, it's only one game. You got to win four. But did the series end on that home run?
1: You know what? It it seemed to be where there was magic in the air. We were we were picked fourth in our division, Grant. <laughs> you know, at the start of the season, and the pitching was was great uh, all the way through. And Tim Belcher, what he did throughout the year, uh, Tim Leary won seventeen games that year, and things just were clicking right for us. But the real the real notion I had that there was something special in the air was when we beat the Mets in seven games mm. in NLCS. Because during the season, we had 12 games with the Mets. One was washed out because of rain. So we had 11 games that we had played with the Mets. They beat us 10 of 11. They were clearly a dominant team over us. And so we, we wind up beating them in seven games in the NLCS. There was something great going on. And I got to tell you, no disrespect to the A's, but they were not as good as the Mets. I mean, if we, if we beat the A's in five and, and, and we beat the Mets in seven, but the Mets were a much more talented team.
0: Winning against the A's, you being Sacramento, Northern California guy, I was blessed to be covering that game when Oral Hershiser and you guys closed it out in Oakland. Any uh, any different special meeting because you beat a Northern California team? And as a kid growing up, who was your team?
1: Well, yeah, there was something special about it. All, all the allegiance that you have as a, as a kid and everything kind of goes away when it's at, a, at this level. But I grew up loving the San Francisco Giants. They were my team. I Grant, I told my dad in 1968, we were watching the Game of the Week with the, with the Dodgers and Giants going at it, and McCovey and Mays and Jimmy Davenport, and remember all those guys? That was, uh, mm-hmm. that was a team I loved. And I told my dad, sitting there with my brother as well, I said, Dad, you know what, if Dodgers ever drafted me, I wouldn't play for the Dodgers for, <laughs> I don't know, a million dollars, a million bucks. And then 10 years later, when they drafted me out of high school, it took $985,000 less for me to <laughs> sign with the L.A. Dodgers. Yeah. $15,000, wow. Grant. I was <laughs> the richest man in my family by far. Right. So that, <laughs> that was it. Fifteen that, grand. It, I did
0: it. That's a hell of a story. I got to tell you. that's uh, unbelievable. Sure. That's incredible. You go yeah. from an, an amazing organization, and then all of a sudden, you're at 161st Street and River Avenue in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest difference between, besides the fact that the Dodgers were really good back then and the Yankees really weren't, but what was the biggest difference between playing in L.A. and playing in New York?
1: Geography. That was it. I mean, look, baseball, there's one thing about it. The infield's always the same. It's 60 feet, six inches away. Yes, I could say I didn't know the pitchers as well, but there was trans- transfer between leagues, and some guys I did know. But they didn't know me as well, e- either. So it was, kind of a, it was kind of a jump ball, if you will. But going over to New York, I felt there was less pressure playing in New York than there was with the Dodgers, maybe because the, the level of expectation wasn't quite as much, because our team really wasn't that good. We didn't have good pitching. But there were so many stars on our team with the, with the Yankees, Not me me not being one of them. But we had Don Mattingly, we had Ricky Henderson, we had Jack Clark, and all I had to do was go in there and secretly do my job. Nobody really cared about me. There was all these other guys that were in the press and all that stuff, so I just got to sneak in there and do my job, and man, it was great. I had, I had some of the best years of my career. I led the league in fielding in the American League when I went over there. I had Don Mattingly at first base and was catching everything, so it was a, it was a good thing for me to kind of set my career on a different mode and actually got some acclaim for my defense instead of just hitting.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought that up because when people think of Don Mattingly, the first thing they think about is what a great hitter he was. But boy, he was something at the. Yeah, he, he was incredible fielding his uh, position.
1: Ridiculous! He was the best fielding first baseman I've ever seen. Grant, have you ever seen him play third base? No. Don Mattingly actually played third base in the big leagues a few games, and I saw him play third base, and he was as good as any other third baseman. He was obviously playing left-handed. The guy was just a phenomenal athlete, more of a workaholic than a, I guess you'd say, a natural athlete. He was a good athlete, but he wasn't a he wasn't a huge guy. He wasn't a fast runner. You know, all that, all that power that he developed, he's a strong guy, but all that power was because of technique that he developed with Lou Pinella. That's where Don Manley became really the prolific home run hitter. But he is just a really talented guy and he's a really good manager too. He is, he is a benefactor for so many people over there on that Miami club that are that are really coming up now. Miami's going to be a team to be reckoned with here in the next year or
0: two. You know, I had Will Clark on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he had one gold glove. And we talked about the aspect of fielding when, you know, people automatically talk about you as a great hitter. And Will obviously was the pride of players you played with back then. That was important to guys, wasn't it? I mean, yes, I understand that the game is so different now. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think fans understood how damn important it was for players to get gold gloves and to really feel their position as well as some of the guys we just talked about.
1: Oh, there's no doubt. And Will Clark was another guy that was a great fielding first baseman all the way around, just a tremendous player. And, but yeah, Grant, the thing is, you want to see players take pride in the defense. You, you want to see them put, to, put in use what you learn and what, you, what you've been taught and how, what you go over time and time again in screen training. And I see guys missing the cutoff, man, by 15 feet and, you know, automatically letting the guy round first and go to second. Now you take the double play out. I, I, uh, you know, the shift is so overrated. I, I mean, there, there's so many things in this game that are changing. You can't pitch inside. You can't, you can't engage the catcher or the middle infielders anymore. I don't know. I, I see guys catching pop-ups with one hand. I've seen them drop a few, too, which would, if I was a pitcher, when we got in the dugout, we'd be fighting. I promise you we would be. If I'm pitching and you're dropping a, a pop-up because you catch it with one hand, we're fighting when we get in the dugout. <laughs> so right. you know, that's what, what happened. And then today,
0: today it's, you know,
1: we don't want to ruffle any feathers.
0: Five-time All-Star. Take me into the National League All-Star locker room the first time you received that honor. How unbelievably oh. special was that? What do you remember the most about that?
1: It was the most special time for me and the all-star team. I was 22 years old. Um, I was in Montreal and I got a chance to go there. I missed actually winning the vote by 1600 votes. Um, and my sister Tammy had about 2000 votes in the back of her car. She was supposed to splurge in there for <laughs> me and she didn't do it. Oh my gosh. I, I could have been the starter if my sister would have gone to the back. <laughs> <box>. um, <laughs> wow. It's <laughs> true story.
0: Unbelievable. And,
1: but, so anyway, Grant going there was so special because I got to bring guests and I brought my dad my dad came with me. I got a hit, my only time up, and they showed my dad in the stands with a roving camera that was kind of a new thing back then. Wow! And my dad had a smile from ear to ear. He got to sit on the dais, and he told everybody when he got back to West Sacramento, I got to sit on the dais. I was he was in between Mike Schmidt and Pete Rose on the dais at lunchtime. Wow. Before the game, nothing about me. He talked about Mike Schmidt, Pete Rose, and, <laughs> and the, but but the, the deal is, Grant that was in that was in J- July of 1982 in June of 1983, my father passed away. Oh, wow. And so I got to share something that was unbelievable, something that nobody can ever take from me now that I got to share that with my dad. It was, it was just, it was the best all-star game ever.
0: That is um, a great, great story. You know, take me five, five all-stars. Was it important to win the all-star game when you played? What was it like in that locker room?
1: Uh, Oh, It was, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, the vice president was in there. We got, to meet, we got to meet him. All the movie stars were there. All that stuff. Stuff on the periphery was really good. What was really special was you got to talk to guys on another team, and they were looking at you as one of the elite players in the game. And it's such a humbling experience. It's so humbling to, to, to think, you know, where I came from and just a small town in West Sacramento with nothing. And to be in that position, it, it's just like, it, it's not like you want to apologize for it, but it, it's really a humbling thing to, to be in. Like, do I really deserve to be here? I mean, am I just, you know, am I with one of these guys? And it's great that you get to rub elbows with these guys and pick their brains. Ted Williams is in there and just, it's just, this is just unreal to, to be in there. It's really astonishing how some guys could actually cancel out when they've been voted to go to an all-star game. They want some time off. I'll take the time off when I'm dead, but I'm going to the All-Star <laughs> game if I'm elected. I
0: guarantee it. <laughs> I, had Dusty, I had Dusty Baker on the podcast back in December, and we talked a lot about this. But, you know, being from Sacramento, you know, Dusty and, and so many other, Tr- Greg Vaughn, I can go on and on. It's amazing how mm-hmm. many tremendous players have come out of that region.
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect weather. It's perfect climate for it. Baseball is really pushed here. Years ago, Sacramento used to be a town of baseball and boxing. Yes. You know, a lot of good boxers have come out of Sacramento as well, yes. uh, and the tradition of playing baseball here is great. Ronnie King, the great scout that signed my brother and I, who recently just passed away, was a guy that really took a lot of effort into developing the guys that he drafted, and that's why so many of the guys that he draft really did make it to the, you know, to the big leagues. And so it's a really baseball-dominant area that, that has a great tradition, and the tradition really does matter.
0: You had an amazing career. I've chronicled rookie of the year, five time All Star, two championships. When you look back though at your career, are there any regrets at all?
1: No regrets at all. Even even the throwing issue that I went through in nineteen eighty three, Grant, where you know I know I was getting laughed at. I was a laughing stock of the league for a while. You know, you're a professional. I mean, that was just, that was just the most awful experience. The loneliest time in my life was when I had to go through that. For some reason, you know, people would say, what is it with the mental block? And what is, and my dad really summed it up for me. (laughs) Right before he passed away, my dad said, look, you don't have a mental block. I mean, you can, you can drive a car, you can judge a distance and read and speak clearly. You don't have a mental block. What you, what you have is a temporary loss of confidence. And and you build that confidence back in practice. So the way you practice is the way you're going to play. And you develop that confidence back when you're working out in practice. And then you take that into game gradually. Um, and I took that advice, and it was the best advice ever because the last 44 games I didn't make an error. And then, like I said, when I went to the American League, I led the league in fielding uh, t- uh, two out of the three years wow. that I was there with the Yankees for sure. So all that stuff comes full circle, a learning experience, a life experience, and actually, I don't regret anything. I, I would have I done it all the same.
0: Mickey Hatcher was telling me he was at first base once, and, you know, you made an and throw, and he said, Saxy. Next time, just roll me the fucking ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's the true story.
1: He said, he said, "Just roll this dumb bitch over here, and I'll, you know, and I'll do it." It's not that far. I mean, right. you know and, 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 and Grant, I get so many. I had two calls this week. I actually, or excuse me, emails from people all over the country. Parents that are really worried that their kids, their son or their daughter, uh, if they're they're playing baseball or softball, they can't make the throwback and. It's wrecking their life, and can you talk to them? And I recently just talked to a kid back in Kentucky who, you know, he was a, a junior, and he, he felt like his life was crumbling before him because he can't do something that is so innate. He was born with it. Everybody can throw a ball. Sure. And now all of a sudden, he can't find the way to do it. So I'm talking with him. I'm anxious to hear what he has to say. But I've, I've helped a lot of people that have been in this situation. I can help them get over
0: it. Well, I listened. I, I remember Chuck Knobloch, again, all-star second baseman, one of the very best in baseball, going through the same thing. I've seen it on the PGA Tour before. You know, it's called the Yips, where the best golfers <laughs> in the world, you know, they can't make a two-foot putt, and it's a mental thing, and it's just the damnedest thing in the world, isn't it?
1: It's the craziest damn thing. It's something they've done their whole life, and it's just getting out of your own way and, and, and not thinking about it. And, and the, the person that's in the middle of it says, yeah, how do I not think about it? I know what I have to do, but how do I not do that? And they got to get to a point where they trust themselves. It's all about trust, and, and it's all about confidence, okay? And once you start doing it correctly in practice, the confidence builds, and the thing goes away. I couldn't believe how, how incredibly easy it was. I just couldn't get out of my own way until I learned how to do it.
0: Is there one at-bat in your career that just eats at you that you wish you could do over?
1: Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of them. I can glump them all into put them under, under one umbrella. And, it, and it's, I can remember times where I was struggling and the ball looked like it was about the size of an aspirin and I just couldn't see it. I mean, hitting is about seeing the baseball. and That's mm-hmm. why most guys that you know are good hitters usually have really good eyesight. I mean, you, you can check on down the line from Babe Ruth to Ted Williams and all the way down, 2015 vision for these guys, even 2010 vision, even better than that. So the, the common denominator of all this thing is you've got to see the baseball. And the times where I wasn't seeing the ball good enough, where I was maybe moving my head a little bit, it's, it's such a minuscule a difference between seeing the ball out of the pitcher's hand and going just a tad too soon when the ball hasn't quite left his hand. And, and that difference can make, make all the difference in the world of you going on a huge tear or you going into a big slump. And it's those times I wish I had maybe waited a little longer saw the ball a little bit better and maybe I could have mitigated some of these times where I had those slumps.
0: Steve, I'm a huge baseball fan and have been really my whole life, but I got to tell you, I have a tough time watching the game. Now as somebody that had the career that you had, is it hard Mm -hmm. for you to get through a baseball game now? I just hate the way the game's played.
1: I, I, I watching the game. I, because it's such a waste because the athletes are so much better they're fast, they're big, they're strong. They've gotten so enamored of themselves about hitting the ball out of the ballpark. They grant, when I was when I was going through my training, I would try to get on top of the baseball, keep my hands inside the ball, and use the middle of the field and have that as my base. Now, if I got in front a little bit, and I pulled the ball down the line, okay. You know what? If the ball was outside and I let the ball travel a little bit more, I hit the ball down the right field line. But the basic part of it was valuable. It was the whole foundation of my approach and the way I hit. Today, I see these guys in, in batting practice hunting the bottom of the baseball, dropping the back shoulder, They're hunting the bottom of the baseball because they want to hit home runs. You know, the, the numbers have screwed up the game more than you can imagine because they get into the numbers and they think, well, if I strike out four times but I hit one home run, actually it's probably going to be a good thing for us because if I extrapolate that over the course of other guys on the team that do the same thing, we got a chance to score more runs, which is not true. But this is the way they think, and it's that thought process. My God, I wish they would have shifted on me. I would have hit four fifty, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, but but today they, they they put the shift on, which is which is you know telling you how they're going to pitch you. We're going to pitch you hard into you know, soft away and get you to roll over and hit a ground ball to the right side. But I wish they would have told me like that. Was how are they going to pitch me? You can't pitch too far inside because you get warned and throw out of the game. I mean. And yet, what do they do? They hit into the shift. They hit right to where they're playing. I, I, I don't understand this. I don't understand how they're not malleable enough where they can just, you know, change up and hit the ball to the left side or hit the ball to the right side. It's, you know, it's not that hard, but, but they don't do it because they want to hit home run.
0: And then, you know, you talk about pitching. God, can you imagine a guy like Oral Hershiser coming out of college now and going through ah. the system and how dominant he was and how many games he went from start to finish? That would never happen. That yeah. would rarely would happen. It's crazy.
1: Oh, it, it, it is. And, you know, these guys that want to hunt the bottom of the baseball, Oral, you know, Oral would have carved these guys up by sinking the ball away from them and they would just have the little rollover or take take another guy that could really throw hard, just pitch up in the strike zone. If you hit the bottom of the baseball up in the strike zone, where's it going to go? Straight up in the air. So I, I don't get it. I don't get the philosophy. I think sometimes, Grant, what's going to happen is that pendulum is going to swing back and it's kind of kind of find its way in the middle here. We're going to have to implement more ways to score runs, like open another spigot to, to score runs through manufacturing them, maybe, maybe hit and run, maybe the speed element comes back in the game. Guys can run faster than ever now. Why don't why aren't
0: they steal bases?
1: You don't see that.
0: What do you miss the most about playing?
1: I miss, I miss the one-on-one confrontation with the pitcher, going against some of the, you know, the best guys in the world. I love that. I love being one-on-one. Nobody can help you. You can't kiss somebody's ass enough to, to get a base hit. You gotta do it or you don't. It's one on one and I love that. I, 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 I have so much respect for the guys that I face, the pitchers, but I love battling them. I, I really like being on a, a, a beautiful, you know, spring day or summer day, a day game stay in LA and there were bases were loaded, there was two guys on and hitting a bullet in the gap. Oh, it was there was there was nothing like it. Or being at Candlestick and coming up to bat with fifty five people because everybody hated us. And getting booed like you couldn't believe. I loved it. I loved every bit of it.
0: Was it harder facing a guy like Nolan Ryan, who you knew was bringing the heat? Or was it more difficult facing a guy that threw a lot of junk?
1: That's a great question. And the answer is the latter. I hit Nolan Ryan pretty well. I mean, I I didn't mind. Roger Clemens was my favorite guy to face for two reasons. One, he threw really hard. And the other one is, I know that with his ego, he was going to try to blow the fastball by me, which he was never going to do, but I knew he was going to try it. And that's why I went up there and I hit, I hit him the best. So I liked that the guys that threw the, you know, the off-speed stuff, the change ups the sliders. Sometimes I got out of my skin a little bit and tried too much. And I, these guys had more chance to get me out, but the guys that challenged me with the fastball, I had really good success against those guys.
0: You talk about, you know, I used the term junk and I was thinking about a pitcher before your time who was great with the Dodgers and then with the Yankees, and that's Tommy John. If Tommy John were 18 years old right now and scouts were out watching baseball, nobody would even give him a look, would they?
1: No, no, because he doesn't light up the radar gun. I actually was teammates with Tommy John at the very end of his career. When I went over to New York, he signed with the Yankees and I got to be teammates with Tommy John. What What a special guy he was and got to play in back of him, uh, and he, he did the same thing all the time. He just threw that sinker, yep. and he had so many times where the players are going back to the dugout, throwing their helmet, pissed off, yelling at him to throw the ball hard, calling him a gutless weasel because he won't throw the ball hard, yep. uh, and he just smiled and let him go back to the dugout because he was smarter than they were. He, was, he would get these guys out, or let me say this, friend, they would get themselves out. That's what Tommy John
0: afforded them. I wonder how many tommy johns sir and i really mean this guys that don't have careers because of the gun now because you know pitching mm-hmm. is different than throwing you know that better than anyone yes. and yes. there are so many guys that would have never had a career i mean tommy again tommy john there's no chance we would have ever seen tommy john in the big leagues if he were just 20 years old right now
1: nope nope you probably never see him you probably wouldn't have saw guys like jimmy t or no. or jamie moyer nope you know, those, those guys probably wouldn't have had a chance. You see some guys once in a while, but they are, they are something – that there's something in there before, like a guy like Dallas Keuchel. You might look at him that, like, but Dallas Keuchel used to throw hard. I mean, he really did, but he, he, has, he has been, I'm not going to say reduced to a guy because he's a very effective pitcher, but your analysis is, is right on, spot on. I mean, a lot of these guys wouldn't have got a chance. But the ones that did were because they did have that ability to light up the gun at one time, and that 's why they got the chance. A guy like Tommy John probably wouldn 't they even looked at today, and look how many games you won.
0: 162 game season. And I was talking to Will Clark about this because in the mid 80s, there were many times that I was, w- when I was working in Illinois, I would be at uh, Bush Stadium when the Cardinals had Whitey Ball. Matter of fact, you guys had some great series with them. But I'll, I remember covering the St. Louis Cardinals one day in the middle of July. It was a day game. And I had a pair of uh, like light colored dress shoes. And I was standing near the batting cage. And basically, I sweat through my dress shoes and I could not even wear them again and I was talking to Will about how brutal it must have been for players on a team like St. Louis that had to play on that carpet in the summer every day mm-hmm. you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about that had to be brutal I mean did you ever think about that what it would be like to and again I am I know it's you fans are going oh Jesus Christ Grant you know they're just no 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 I, you would yeah. sit in the dugout at Bush Stadium and you know what I'm talking about you could see the heat vapors yeah. coming off the field that had to be brutal
1: yeah I, I, I loved it because it reminded me of Sacramento in the summertime. Hot as wow. all get out. I loved it. I loved the heat. The hotter the better. Our our trainers were putting aluminum foil in our spikes on our shoes because of the heat. It was so hot. They kicked the temperature one day, it was 147 degrees on the on the turf. Yep. 147. I remember I go for a ball in the hole. I got up and I had blisters all the way down my forearms. Wow. From diving from a ball. Yeah, that was scorching. But I love the heat. Some of these pitchers would go out there and, and they pitch a you know they, the goal was to pitch a full game then, and these guys on a day like that would lose fifteen twenty pounds uh, through a through a nine, uh, nine inning game. It wasn't odd for them to do it, and, but they had to replenish it fast because it's getting kind of dangerous when you lose fifteen twenty pounds in one afternoon. But that's what would happen for some of those big pitchers. It was a little bit more dangerous for them, but yeah, it, it was something playing back in that heat. I hit my first home run on a day like that on national TV in St. Louis. Mm. Never forget it. That, it, it. that heat and those hot days in St. Louis bring back a lot of good memories.
0: Who are some of your favorite teammates that you played with?
1: Oh, gosh. I had, you know what, 99.9% of the guys, Grant, that I played with in baseball were just great guys. I mean, I love seeing them. Today, when I see these guys, they're always going to be your brothers, always going to be your brothers till the day you die. We can finish each other's sentences today, same jokes. You know, I, I look back. I think guys like you know Don Mattingly was one of my favorite teammates. Mike Sosha was a great teammate. You know, Kim Raines was a great teammate, and, and all the guys were really good. But those are some of the guys that, that most people would know. Very, very special people. Paul Goldschmidt, mm. I coached him in Arizona, and, and, and AJ Pollock, I coached him in Arizona as well when I was when I was there with the D-backs. I don't know if, if God put nicer people on the earth than these young men. I don't know where they are, but I've never met them because these, these, all, all these guys were kind of the same, you know, very respectful people, worked hard, you know, wasn't about them, just tremendous people. You, you wish that they would be your next door neighbor for, for life, you know. That's the kind of thing I miss. I don't miss baseball, Grant. I, I don't miss baseball, but I sure miss my teammates. Sure. I love my teammates.
0: Hey, yeah. I got to tell you, man, it's great catching up with you. I really appreciate you coming on, man. It's just so great to reminisce and share your stories and your great career. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today.
1: Hey, Grant, you got a great podcast. And I want to thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. And we'll talk again soon. But thank you again for having me.
0: Before we get to Crowd q and I want to tell you about Adload Technologies, a brand new innovative way to advertise your company now they utilize led digital displays they're embedded in the back of semi-trailers so your message will always flow with traffic and capture attention of consumers in high traffic areas now additionally adload can provide comprehensive and intelligent reporting so hey it gives you accurate impression counts and exposure to analyze your marketing strategy for the long term. Just go to AdloadTechnologies.com. That's A-D-L-O-A-D, AdloadTechnologies.com. Really have enjoyed the questions that I have been receiving via CrowdUltra. If you have not signed up yet, go to CrowdUltra.com. Takes a moment and maybe I'll answer your question right here on the podcast. Julian wants to know what innovations advancements could be made in sports broadcasting. You know what, Julian? I'm a little old-fashioned, I think. I think they need to scale back. I think it's gotten out of hand. I think there's too many gimmicks. Uh, I think so many of us just want to watch the game. There are so many damn graphics, and there's this and there's that. I think the camera angles are tremendous. I think they've been very innovative with that. But let us see the damn game, would you please? And I think that really a lot of – they're always trying to put the cart ahead of the horse to me. You know, don't forget what the purpose of televising a game is, all right? It's to see the game. Luke says, what level of experience do you think a coach needs in their sport to be a good pro coach? Well, I think they need to have a lot of experience being an assistant coach. Now, I know there are examples of where that was not necessarily true, Doc Rivers being one, but I really believe that. I I think. That is number one. I don't believe that a head coach in a sport has to be a former player, but I do think that experience as an assistant is very, very important. Kevin wants to know, what sports topics do you get tired of discussing the most? You know, I don't really get tired of discussing topics, but the one thing that continues to piss me off and bothers me Are the people that turn their other heads or turn their heads the other way when LeBron James puts out a tweet or, you know, they cover a sport and they know that what's going on is wrong and they just bury their head in the sand because they don't want to upset anybody? That probably bothers me the most. And I know I didn't answer your question specifically the way you wrote, but that's how I feel. Zach says, you talked about the best NBA players from Duke – where does Jason Tatum fit in? That's a really good question, Zach. I did not include Tatum just because he's so young in his career. But yeah, he could very well be maybe the best player to ever come out of Duke based on how good he's been in the first couple of years of his NBA career and if he stays healthy, where he might be heading. David asked, Mike Lombardi of The Athletic said the 49ers were going to take Mac Jones but took Lance for fan reaction. Isn't that a ridiculous statement to make? No, it's not. It's not ridiculous at all because a lot of people feel that. Now, he didn't say they did it for fan reaction. All right? I think you got that a little bit wrong. He said that the outside influence not from the fans, but from within his front office particularly, made Kyle Shanahan change his mind and go along with the majority from Jones to Lance. I think Mike Lombardi's right here, David. I think most people will tell you. The 49ers moved up originally to take Mac Jones, the quarterback, out of Alabama. And a lot of people have reported this, and I believe it to be true as well. They did not shift to Trey Lance until very late in the proceedings, so no, I don't think that's a ridiculous to state, a ridiculous statement to make at all. Again, he didn't say for fan reaction. That's not why they did it. It was not because of fan reaction. Ian wants to know: Is John Elway's legendary status overrated? Hell, no. Have you did you watch him play? He was a great, great quarterback. Great, like great. Overrated. No, no. In my opinion, he's one of the top five quarterbacks in the history of the National Football League. Willie wants to know, does Julius Randle deserve to be in the MVP discussion? Yeah, you know, I I think he does, but not near the very top. I mean, the Knicks are, what, fourth in the East? I can't give the MVP to a team that's fourth in a conference. But yeah, I mean, he's had a tremendous year. Mitch wants to know, do you see MLB umps making mistakes with basic base running calls? No, I see you not understanding the rules. And I know exactly what play you're referring to, where it looked like the call to award the runner first base on a ground ball back to the pitcher in a flip, and then he kind of, the, the fielder stepped in the baseline. That's the way the rule is written. Even though it seemed very innocent and had no effect on the play, any obstruction of the base path to the runner, the runner is awarded the base, okay? So I don't think you understand the rules, Mitch. And I'm not trying to be a wise-ass here. I don't think you understand the rules. I think, like, a lot of us, you watch the play and you go, gee, what a horrible call that was, without really understanding the way the rules are written. Torvich wants to know, what do you think about Seth Curry? You know, I've always liked Seth Curry. I liked him when he was in Sacramento. I enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, I've been surprised. I talked to Jerry Reynolds about this on my podcast, what was it, a month ago, that it's hard for me to understand why a player like that can't stick with a team. Jake wants to know, who do you think is the best team in the NBA at this moment? There isn't a best team in the NBA at this moment. And I think that's why this playoffs, in terms of you know not having a clear-cut favorite, uh, is going to make it very interesting, even though I'm on the record of saying, I think the ratings will be very bad. Reed wants to know does uh will Justin Herbert perform better than any rookie quarterback this season? Yes, he absolutely will. Uh Sam says, do you believe the 49ers or Broncos tampered with Rodgers like the Packers claimed? You know, Sam, I would have no way of knowing that. Jason wants to know where does parting ways with Michael Malone rank on the list of recent mistakes the Kings have made? It's right up there at the top. Hiring Pete Dellasandro was a gigantic mistake. Keeping Mike Malone, excuse me, firing Mike Malone and keeping Pete D'Alessandro was a gigantic mistake. Trading Isaiah Thomas instead of DeMarcus Cousins was a gigantic mistake. And those all coincided at the same time. Michael Malone should have stayed. DeMarcus should have gone. Isaiah should have stayed. Pete DeLisandro should have gone. So it's right up there, right up there. Good question. No doubt about it. Dan wants to know, is John Morant saying he's a top five point guard? Agree or disagree? I do not agree. He's not a top five point guard yet. Jesse wants to know, should Mike Budenholzer's job be on the line this season? Absolutely. Good question. You know, if the Bucks flame out like they have in the past, yes. Christian wants to know, is Deion Sanders' frustration towards no HBCU players being drafted this year justified? You know, I don't know enough about the HBCU in terms of personnel, okay? But what I do know this is 32 teams in the NFL look for the best players. And they scout HBCU schools and have for a long time. And so if all 32 teams did not feel that there were NFL-caliber players in this year's draft eligible from the HBCU, then I don't have a problem with it. I don't think there's a conspiracy or a conspiracy or anything. I don't think there's anything to do with race. I think that obviously is ridiculous. I just think that the scouts did not feel that there were players uh, playing at an HBCU program that were worthy of being drafted. All right, Chris wants to know, what do you think about Michael Rappaport? You know what? I enjoy his videos. He's entertaining. You know, I agree with some things he says. I don't agree with others, but... You know, he gets right to the point, and there's no BS with him, and I like that. Sam said, hey, Grant, did you hear Mello's quote after reaching 10th in scoring? I found it inspiring. I did, too. Good job right there. Uh, I thought it was outstanding. Adam said, how will Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime affect viewership? Won't help it. Now, I don't know how it's going to be made available to the public, but I don't, I, I'm not crazy about it. Martin wants to know, is Luka Doncic one of the biggest complainers in the NBA? He is, and you know what? It's a turnoff. He is. I did a rant on this the other day. Shut up and play the freaking game. 16 technical fouls. The next one will result in an automatic suspension. He's too good of a player for that. Stop it already. Shut up and play the game. Yeah, It's not like this guy's won championships. Not that that gives you carte blanche to yell at the referee. But think about this. Guy's never... Guy, what, he been in one playoff series? And I, I got to listen to Luka Doncic complain on every single whistle. You know, as if he's the greatest thing since sliced bread? Uh-uh. Stop it. Play the freaking game. Would you please? Play the game. It's time for rant, 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 rant. Hey, today's rant's brought to you by Manscaped. Did you know that one guy, every hour, every day is diagnosed with testicular cancer? So, hey, this is a reminder to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's exactly right, because together TCS and Manscaped, they are committed. TCS is the Testicular Cancer Society, and they're raising awareness for the most common form of cancer in men age 15 to 35. So here's the deal, all right? Manscaped and TCS recommends you check yourself once a month. If you feel any lumps or swelling, make sure you give your doctor a call. And don't forget about the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. It is absolutely awesome. You will love it. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. You know, I have said this on numerous occasions, and I'm going to say it again as we approach the end of the regular season. I have no idea how the hell anyone can root and support Kyrie Irving. I think this guy is such a bad look for the NBA. I think he is an embarrassment for the NBA. You can't count on him. He leaves his team. He's AWOL like he did in January, then comes back and says, I needed a break. He's had two other absences due to quote-unquote personal reasons this year. He was once again fined, along with the Brooklyn Nets, $35,000 apiece for failing to address the media after the loss the other night to the Milwaukee Bucks. And you know what Irving said after the fine on Instagram? And I'm going to quote him. I pray we utilize the fine money for the marginalized communities in need, especially seeing where our world is presently. I am here for peace, love, and greatness. So stop distracting me and my team and appreciate the art, we move different over here. He added, I do not, this is unbelievable, I do not talk to pawns, my attention is worth more. You know what, it's too bad that the NBA can't just kick this guy out of the league. Seriously, he's a disgrace. He's horrible, he's horrible. He's an absolute embarrassment to the league, all right? This guy's getting paid what he's getting paid, and he blows off the media, and then comes out with a statement like that, You know, with all the money that he's making, why doesn't he give his money to the marginalized communities in need? He could give millions and millions and millions of dollars each and every year. And you know what? He would still have a great quality of life. Is he doing that or is he just yapping? I mean, you can't count on the guy. Again, he disappears. He just leaves the team. He doesn't want to talk to the media. He gets fined. The team gets fined. That's a total of 70 grand. And he comes out with a comment like that, and yet the NBA fans in Brooklyn will still cheer for him? I'll tell you this, and I mean this in all sincerity. If he played on my favorite team, not only would I not cheer him, I would not attend any of the games. I would not watch the games. And if I ran into him in person, I would go up to him and tell him, in my opinion, he's a disgrace to the National Basketball Association. All right. While the league's TV ratings continue to go down, you have players like Kyrie Irving who are absolutely tone deaf. They are not aware of the problems facing their league and they just pour gasoline on the fire. It's players like Kyrie Irving that ruin the beauty of professional sports. Shame on Irving. And if you are a fan and you root for him, I'm going to say this shame on you too and that's my rant for today hope you enjoyed the podcast thank you so much to steve Sachs for joining me be sure and check out my video rants as well over on youtube hey make it a great weekend and thank you so much for listening to if you don't like that with grant napier